Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Parliament hasn't even been back for a week, but a week really is a long time in politics. So much has happened since Monday. As rumours of reshuffle hovered over Westminster, the Prime Minister published his long-promised social care plan. So does the plan add up? The largest tax rise since the 1970s will now be introduced by a Conservative government, and with confirmation that the spending review and budget will be held next month, where might spending cuts fall? We're going to take a look at Rishi Sunak's difficult autumn of saying no. And with that historic social care plan voted through after just one day's debate, we'll turn our attention to parliamentary scrutiny, or the lack of it. So, joining me in the virtual studio after a very economic start to the new session is the IFG's chief economist, Gemma Tetlow. Hi, Gemma. Hello. Great to have you here. And I'm delighted as well to be joined by Tim Montgomery, political commentator and contributing editor to Reaction. Hi, Tim. How are you? Lovely to be with you. Well, a little bit um, beaten up by this week, but uh, we've made it somehow through the last five days. Yeah, good or bad week as a Conservative? I think a very bad week as a as a Conservative. Um, uh, we're recording on uh, Friday morning and I woke up to this morning's Times, which shows the first Labour lead since I think dinosaurs roam the earth. And um, I think there is going to be a political backlash uh, for this. And I think deservedly so. But um, I should probably stop talking. We might get into all of that in a minute. We're going to get into all of that in just a minute. So let's begin with the story of the week, social care. We're joined as well now by Graham Atkins, IFG Associate Director, who looks into public services for us. Hi, Graham. Hi, Bronwyn. Graham, over two years ago, Boris Johnson stood on the steps of Downing Street to say he had a plan to fix social care. Has he got a plan? Uh, He does have a plan. I think it would be hard to say that this is a plan that's kind of taken two and a half years to write. It does pair the hallmarks of somewhat of a rush document. There is no impact analysis of the proposals, for example. Um, But in a strange way, it's really a social care announcement for NHS funding. And what I mean by that is that the government's promised £36 over the next three years. Of that, actually only about £5.4 is going to social care in England, and around half of the money is going to NHS England. We presume, and the government has said, to help clear the backlogs of people waiting for operations. But actually, really, the breakdown of this money isn't clear. And it's not really clear where the staff might come from to actually to do some of these operations to, and to increase access to care. So while there is a plan, I, I think I'd say I'd struggle to be impressed. Gemma, what do you reckon? I think the positives from the announcements this week were that unlike what we've seen at, at times in the past when more money has been given to the NHS, the government did at least this week say we need to spend more on the NHS and social care and we're going to raise taxes to do that. So they did package for the public the idea that if you want more, then you have to pay for that. So I think that's a positive from this week's announcements. But as Graham said, a lot of the extra money, at least for the next couple of years, is going to be going to the NHS. And whilst it's good, I think, that the, the government has finally sort of grasped the nettle on how do we ensure people against some of the catastrophic costs of social care. They've introduced this new cap and found some money to pay for that. There's actually still a lot of detail lacking, really, in how is this plan going to shore up the existing means-tested social care system. The, the cap on private pay costs is only really worth something to people if they know that when they then need to draw on the state offer, that actually that's there for them, that it's properly funded, that the staff are available and that the the private system that backs up that state offer actually is working. 
All right. So we've got a lot of uncertainties about whether whether it will, in fact, do what it says about social care, whether the NHS is going to swallow this up, whether, in fact, this is just the extrapolation of the NHS's need for more money because of an aging population. Nothing to do with coronavirus and a backlog. But the one thing that is completely clear is that national insurance is now going up. Tim, take us into your outrage about this. Well, I was very pleased. I hope Sasha Javid, my friend, isn't listening to this um, broadcast. Or, um, no, I very much hope he is. But, you know, I was really pleased. I don't know if you remember, but um, when Boris Johnson first stood for the leadership of the Conservative Party, his tax priority was raising the income tax threshold for better off people. And Sajid rightly, when he was Chancellor, fought a battle to change that because that was a tax change that would benefit better off people. And he made actually lowering national insurance contributions, you know, his signature issue as Chancellor at the last general election. If there was room for tax cuts, that would be a priority. And I thought that was a good thing because that would, you know, overall be skewed towards people struggling to make ends meet at the bottom of the income scale. So to use national insurance contributions as the primary way of funding this is a real contravention, not just of the overall pledge that the Tories made at the last election, but what I thought was one of Sasha Javid's big gains. And there are plenty of better ways, more direct ways, I think, that this could have right. been. So would you, would you have been happy if it had been an income tax raise? Instead. I would have been happier. I, you know, this is a massive subject. I would have begun, I just think the Conservative government generally has lost control of spending, whether it's HS2 or the cost of test and trace. I don't see an overall strategy from this government to be fiscally responsible. And so I think picking things off one by one doesn't really get to the heart of my complaint about about this government. But yes, is the answer to your fundamental question Better income tax than national insurance, but better that the government was putting pressure on all these these costs overall. Graham, what do you make of that point of whether the government is too much accepting the pressure, the constant demands from, from public services and, and from people's expectations to keep putting more money in? I think on balance, I probably agree with the Gemma that with a lot of these kind of pressures, you do need to actually fund some of them. Clearly, government could also look could also look for efficiencies. The thing I think I struggle with is that there's not really a clear plan for how you're going to make them after a decade where you've largely squeezed costs and accepted or in practice accepted that you no longer want to do that. I think some of the efficiencies you actually might be able to make probably won't save costs over the course of a spending review. So to take, I suppose, adult social care as an example, one key thing that local authorities did during the first half of the 2010s was cut the payments they made to social care providers. That worked for a few years, but then it turned out that lots of care providers no longer wanted to provide publicly funded care because it wasn't, basically, they couldn't make a profit off it. So they started exiting the market, recruitment and retention rates got worse. So it's pretty hard to squeeze down on that any further. Now, one thing you could try to do is, you know, think about kind of public health or other investments to maybe reduce the number of people who need to be cared for in a care home or, you know, provide them with better support at home. But that requires upfront investment uh, in order to kind of reap the benefits later on. So I think I'm not kind of, I think you do need to accept there's going to have to be higher spending, even if you just kind of want to hold things still over the next couple of years. 
I'm certainly not against higher spending. I think there probably is a need for higher spending. There just doesn't seem to be any real resolve at the heart of this government at the moment to try and bring costs under control at all. And perhaps at the end of the day, we'd end up in a place where costs couldn't be controlled. But I'm just not seeing the effort there either. Well, look at some of the things that the the Chancellor is facing in the next couple of uh, weeks, even, uh, and some of the decisions he has made. I mean, saying no to the the very loud chorus saying that the universal credit £20 uplift should stay. That's one thing that he's done. It is. Um, Whether he will be able to hold that position, I don't know. I think we had 40 Conservative MPs fail to support the government this week on the national insurance hike. There are 50 Conservative MPs who are publicly anxious, including former Secretaries of State like Ian Duncan Smith, the founder of Universal Credit, who are against removing all of this £20 uplift. I'd be very surprised if all of this uplift is actually taken away from people. Gemma, what do you think the Chancellor ought to do? On the one hand, you've got, you had enormous pressures on public services anyway before coronavirus as, as performance tracker, which Graham is right now editing this year's edition of, uh, has, has said. You've got people's expectations raised enormously because of coronavirus expectations of the government supporting them. Uh, and you've got a much higher level of, of debt. You know, what gives? The debate we're having now, I think, really reflects the, the, the almost impossible promise that was made in the Conservative manifesto that there would be more money and better public services. There would be a promise to get borrowing down and not increase debt. And also that the aspiration was to not raise taxes and if anything, to cut them. And that was always going to be a very hard uh, trilogy of promises to keep. Uh, and if anything, coronavirus has just made that more difficult. What gives um, will largely come down to what the government decides its priorities are. There are quite a few areas of public services that are still in need of more money coming out the other side of coronavirus. Local authority funding is still under strain, even with some more money for social care. We have backlogs in the court system, for example. Uh, Schools are asking for more money to help with catch-up of Uh, lost schooling during the coronavirus pandemic. There's also, as you've already mentioned, the pressure to increase the generosity or retain the increased generosity of universal credit, reflecting perhaps the fact that more people have realised quite how ungenerous our system always was pre-pandemic. On the tax side, it's interesting that the government has chosen to break its manifesto tax lock, which has been in there um, for Uh, I think the past two elections. Economically, that was always a a pretty silly pledge to make to say that you wouldn't increase any of the major taxes, because if you don't do that, you then end up scrabbling around for extra money from smaller taxes, which just ends up creating many more distortions in the system. But that was a a sort of fundamental principle for the, the Conservative Party in recent elections. And that seems to have now been somewhat dropped. So it it's a political choice about which of those priorities are the most important to this government. Tim, just take us into the political priorities and where you think the party is. Because there was, as you said, a lot of a lot of unhappiness, and that's understating it some. Yeah, and um, I was at a dinner of Conservative MPs. I addressed a dinner of Conservative MPs on Tuesday evening, and I think looking at the voting register, I think just about all of those Conservatives there that night. Um, voted with the government in the division lobbies. But 
not one of them supported the government uh, that night. They were all arguing against what had happened uh, in private in our conversation. So the government at the moment has the vote still in the Commons. It has the loyalty. But I think it's losing the heartfelt support of the of the parliamentary party. And I think there are a whole range of reasons why that is happening. But the Conservative Party, I think, is now going through something of an identity crisis. If we don't stand for uh, low taxation, and there was a poll this week just showing how wise the British people are, that I think only 16% of the, Conservative, of the public now do think of the Conservative Party as a low-tax party. Uh, in- increasingly, we're not a small state party. Uh, we're taking all sorts of gambles with our traditional reputation. If you had to I- ascribe an identity to the Conservative Party now, I think you just have to say it's the party of the older voter. And if you're looking for an explanation of why the Conservative Party have prioritised funding this particular challenge over, for example, the universal credit uplift, it's because the Conservative Party relies on older voters for its electoral success. And um, of course, we owe an obligation to our more senior citizens. But I just think it's sad that that seems to be almost what the Conservative Party is becoming as its defining mission and purpose. Where was the Labour plan? The Labour plan? Well, the Labour plan, should I think, I think there's a report by in the Times today, saying that Andy Burnham is encouraging Keir Starmer to come up with an alternative. I'm not sure that's good advice. I think Keir Starmer should just occasionally say, you're in government for the time being. You sort this out and just make hay at the Conservative Party's divisions over this. I don't think, I think it's too early for Labour to pledge to take a position. And I'm pretty sure this will now be the way that social care is funded. So it will be, if Labour adopts a position now that they then have to basically reverse by the time of the election, I'm not sure that, um, I'm not sure that would suit them well. So I think actually, to be fair to Keir Starmer, a little bit of opportunism is, uh, is probably what he should do from his own political point of view. And as you said at the beginning, it's, it's uh, faring well for him in the polls at yeah. least at the moment. So, Graham, just take us into the, the, the next couple of years. Gemma gave us a list of stuff in public services that really, really needs money, many would think, and that's exactly what your performance tracker is looking at. Which public services really have a good claim? Good question. Um, I suppose, again, to go to Gemma's point, it depends on what you prioritise. I think one way of trying to think through which public services might need more money is to think through what are the long-term implications of spending or not spending money on them. And I think from that perspective, perhaps schools and schools catch-up is particularly important, given that we think that uh, education and investment in human capital tends to have quite long-run returns. That's not to say that other things like the NHS backlog or improving access to social care aren't important. But just if you were trying to think through the implications for kind of uh, economic growth and, and kind of prosperity more generally, perhaps schools catch up might be particularly important. And again, really, all of this is going to come to a head at the spending review uh, on the 27th of October. So practically uh, within Whitehall and politically amongst kind of MPs, that is going to be the next big date where we'll see how most of these pressures will play out. And those things being thrashed out at the moment, only six weeks or so to go. Graham, thank you very much for joining us. All 
Right. Let's look ahead now in a different way. Um, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, said he'll set his annual budget on October 27th alongside this three-year spending review that we've been talking about. And he's pledged to put the UK public finances on a sustainable path. So let's just dig into that a bit more. Gemma, you wrote a brilliant paper which set out the tough decisions ahead for Sunak. What does he need to spend money on? The areas where more spending arguably is needed are in the short term tackling some of the backlogs and overhanging problems from COVID, whether that's the backlog in the court system, children who didn't uh, get referred to social care during the pandemic who may now have more severe problems than they would have done. There are also some ongoing issues for various areas of the public sector that have lost income because of changes in behaviour through the pandemic. And that's particularly the train companies that have been uh, bailed out with extra government money over the last year or so, and also local authorities that have lost income from things like their commercial property, uh, car parking charges, all those sorts of things. So there are those pressures, which some of which may well be just short term. And as Graham said, in a way, some of those pressures are probably worth meeting from government borrowing, because if you don't spend the money on them, that may be a false economy because you just end up with higher costs in the long term. For example, if you have poorly educated children or people with much more severe long term health uh, problems because you don't deal with the problem up front. There are also then longer term um, spending pressures, which have been there since uh, before the pandemic in many cases. So whether in particular uh, things like extra money needed to uh, help the ageing population through health and social care, some of which has been dealt with this week. On other areas of spending, I think universal credit is one of those big question marks. We've already talked about whether the government will really um, be able to make the cuts that it's planned there. What we also heard this week was the government set out its envelope for the how much money is going to be available in total at the spending review later in the autumn. And the punchline on that was really that aside from the extra money they've now allocated to health and social care, they haven't put any more money into the pot for any other services. So that means that all those other services that are waiting for a settlement, whether that's the justice system or many other areas of services, those areas face a very tight settlement in the spending review. In fact, not much more than a real terms freeze over the next few years. Um, and that will be very challenging to meet that whilst also meeting the other inevitable increase in, in demands that they'll see. Tim, you were mentioning the universal credit row and you said earlier that you thought um, that, as Gemma's just mentioned, that the government might have to back down on scrapping the the uplift, even though the letters are going out you know, now warning people about it. What do you think is going to happen? I think a messy compromise will probably be reached. I hope so. I think we're all, as we do our weekly shopping at the moment, are noticing prices going up for basic foodstuffs and other uh, general living expenses. Um, heating our homes is going to become more expensive this winter. If you, if you take £20 away from people's universal credit during this period, I think that's pretty tough political judgment to make. And so I think there'll be a... Uh, a bit of game of chicken between the Chancellor and backbench Tory MPs. But when it comes down to the wire, I think the Chancellor will make a significant concession and probably, you know, take away £10 of the 20. And use inflation perhaps as the cover for that. Absolutely. And I think that would be entirely justifiable. I'm not at all envious of Rishi Sunak's position. I think it's a nightmare 
fiscal position. I think we're going to, I think this is going to be the dominant issue in British politics for a number of years now. Um, I think we're going to have a good, uh, Gillian is a better person to judge this than me, but I think we're going to have a good short term period economically. But I think then even the economy is going to slow. And so we're going to be faced with some really tough economic judgments, um, fiscal judgments for some years to come. Now, I, must, I, I think you're right. People keep talking about Rishi Sunak as a future prime minister. But one thing that bothers me is whether you can get to prime minister from chancellor when you've had to say no an awful lot, as Absolutely. he's likely to have to do. It, it, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think I think it's going to be very, very difficult for him. And I think he's, you know, there's been a little bit of a naughty briefing in the background, you know, over the last few weeks about this social care issue. And I think he's wanted to blame the health secretary and the prime minister and to wash his hands of it. And, you know, I'm not responsible for it. It's been the behind the scenes briefing message given to newspapers. But whatever the truth of that, we'll have to own the cuts to come. He will have to be the chancellor that gets up and tells the nation that all these things are going to cost them more through their taxes or that things that services that they've been used to will no longer be available in in the same way. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see whether his popularity survives that because anyone can give lots of money away, but what is his ability to persuade the British people that the tough things that he's asking of them are justified. That's a very, very hard political skill. And frankly, if he pulls it off, perhaps he deserves to become Prime Minister. Okay, with that, let's turn to our third question that's been in the background of a lot of what we've been discussing already. And that's the government's attitude towards parliamentary scrutiny. We've just published the latest edition of IFG's annual parliamentary monitor, and that looks at the 2019 to 21 parliamentary session. Its author, Alice Lilly, joins us now. Hi, Alice. Hi, Bronwyn. Great to have you here. Well, this was an extraordinary session of parliament, wasn't it? Remind us of all the changes that came in. You're absolutely right. You know, in Right after the election in December 2019, it really looked as though Parliament was going to go back to normal after a very difficult few years of minority government and debates over Brexit. You have an incoming Conservative government with a large majority. It manages to get its Brexit deal through, and it looks as though it's going to turn its focus um, to its manifesto commitments. And then, of course, COVID reaches Britain and essentially all bets are off at that point. COVID becomes the dominant issue in government and therefore in parliament. And not only that, but COVID also affected the way that parliament itself worked. We saw the Commons and the Lords move to forms of virtual and remote working. We've even had the Lords voting entirely remotely. And these are the kinds of changes in parliamentary practice that have just happened incredibly quickly and to an extent that I think nobody would really have thought possible before then. And how much did it all cost? Because it did cost more than it saved, didn't it? That's right. Um, So for both houses of parliament, um, there were a few uh, small savings in some areas. So for example, there were things like delayed recruitment and slightly reduced maintenance costs across the parliamentary estate. But all of those things were more than offset by the higher costs associated with um, preparing both chambers for virtual proceedings, for example. Um, So all in all, in the 2020-2021 financial year, this cost uh, both Houses of Parliament £20 million in higher day-to-day running costs. 
And then there was more spending as well on top, wasn't there, on kit and, and, and so on. Yes, that's right. There was some further capital expenditure. And the other thing it's worth saying there um, is that those figures do not include the cost of MPs' uh, expenses because those are paid separately to Parliament. We don't yet have the data on that. It's likely that there will be some savings because, of course, MPs haven't been travelling to Parliament uh, as much as they usually would. But we have also seen that MPs have had to increase their office budgets um, and staffing budgets because they've had so much extra constituency work during COVID. Yeah. So, so thanks for that. So let's just jump back to the scrutiny point. The government says, look, we had uh, urgency. It was a national crisis. Uh, that's more important than parliamentary scrutiny, though, of course, that's terribly important. Should we give them a pass on that? I think certainly if you cast your mind back to February and March of 2020, when COVID was really beginning to run through the UK, certainly it is reasonable to suggest that urgency should have sort of taken precedence over scrutiny at that point. You know, the government needed to ensure that it it had powers to respond to the pandemic. So things like starting to have those daily press conferences, um, big announcements, you know, live to the nation rather than in Parliament, passing the Coronavirus Act within just four days. I think all of that is reasonable and understandable. I think what you have to do, though, is separate that from what we have seen since then. So throughout the rest of the session, even as the pandemic um, perhaps became less of an emergency, the situation became less uncertain, we've seen the government to continue to behave in similar ways. It's continued to bring forward regulations that have often come into force before Parliament has had the chance to approve them, or even in some cases actually see them. Um, And it's continued to pass these things very quickly, to make announcements outside of Parliament. The other thing it's worth highlighting is that this is not just about COVID. We have seen the government move to constrain scrutiny on other issues. So, for example, for months and months, it denied MPs a vote on cuts to overseas aid spending, essentially because the government knew it might well lose that vote. So it's not just on COVID that we saw scrutiny restricted. And we've just had uh, Parliament being given a day, just a day to debate and then vote on the social care levy. Tim, was it ever thus? Don't all governments do their best to avoid scrutiny? I think there's probably always been a inclination from the executive to avoid uh, scrutiny from the legislature. But I sound like a uh, cardboard cutout Thatcherite here, Bronwyn. But one thing that um, I do remember, I certainly have read an awful lot of and heard testimony from ministers about, is that they feared going into number 10 when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. They knew that when they had a complex brief to defend, that she would be all over the detail as her advisors would, and they would not sort of emerge from that kind of star chamber of inquest with um, out the policy improved or you know thoroughly tested or completely thrown out. And there's one thing is to treat the legislature without a great deal of respect. But, you know, in the, um, in the uh, social care package that's just been unveiled, it seems to have emerged somewhat shadily from discussions between three members of the cabinet. The cabinet as a whole just acted as a rubber stamp within hours of them getting a pretty quick briefing on the policy. It was announced to the country and then, of course, voted on in parliament. So, There isn't the system of cabinet committees that there have been under previous 
um, administration. So I wouldn't ever be relaxed about the lack of scrutiny from the legislature, but I would be more relaxed if I thought the internal processes of government for policy formation were at least robust. It's the combination of the two that means that the public is being very badly served, I think, at the moment. And what's the mood on the back benches about the lack of chance to challenge the government on these things? I think it's it's I think there's a people have been through such an unusual 18 months and a lot of the MPs of course they've never really been MPs in a normal functioning parliament so I think you have a lot of the uh, people with more grey in their hair who realize something is amiss but I think a lot of the newer MPs this is almost what they've they've been used to and I think therefore they're a little bit more docile in protesting against what the government is doing. It's a really, really interesting point. I've heard from some older ones, indeed older ones, saying, um, look, Parliament feels supine at the moment. It's not really managing to to challenge the government at all. This is from Conservatives. Gemma, do you think Sunak in particular, who we were talking about, is going to face a problem among the party's MPs? He does, as we've already discussed, face a difficult autumn trying to kind of make the numbers add up. As I said before, I think that's partly because the Conservative manifesto was an almost impossible promise of better public services, more money for levelling up, but at the same time, no increase in taxes and perhaps a cut and lower borrowing. And different bits of that manifesto package appealed to different bits of the Conservative electorate. And therefore, perhaps the challenge he faces this autumn is that there are ways of squaring the circle but there may not be one option that actually appeals to all of the Conservative MPs that he needs to work with. And so I think that will be the challenge for him is which set of policies will appeal to enough to enough of the MPs on his backbenchers. Yeah. And Alice, do you think it makes a difference to scrutiny that they're all going to be meeting now in person as opposed to on Zoom? I think it does. Yes. Um, I mean, for one thing, we know that lots of MPs found that while they were meeting remotely, the sort of quality of debate and the fluency of debate in Parliament wasn't quite what they were used to. So I think that is something that will improve. I mean, it's a really interesting question how this affects what the whips do. One of the things that we found in our research is that during um, the period where Parliament expanded proxy voting to to pretty much anybody, about 95% of those votes were controlled by whips, which gives them a huge amount of control. But at the same time, we have seen quite a lot of backbench rebellions, particularly among Conservative MPs. So there's a really interesting question about now that the Whips lose some of that control because they're going back to in-person voting, how does that affect what they're doing? Does it mean that the Whips are losing a bit of control or does it actually mean that the Whips are gaining some control because they can actually corral their MPs in the division lobbies um, and put sort of physical person-to-person pressure on them, which is perhaps a bit easier to do than it is when when everybody's in their own homes. Yeah, this is by force of argument, we mean, rather than actually. Um, Tim, just as a last word on this, we we started um, talking about Boris Johnson and his poll ratings, and I think that may be a place we could end this. So he's, you know, he's broken manifesto promises, he's sidelining parliament. Does any of this matter? He seems to have had the knack for keeping the polls up, or maybe just till now. Well, look, there's been one 
dip in Tory fortunes uh, in the latest, uh, I think, YouGov poll for the Times referred to already. It is only one single poll, though. There have been sort of Tory slides in the past, and he's bounced back. You look at the ratings for him amongst general election 2019 Tory voters, and it is they are so much higher than the, the ratings that Keir Starmer enjoys. So, we shouldn't underestimate the trouble he's in. I think he's every government goes through certain midterm unpopularity. I think his huge advantage, I was on Talking Pints with Nigel Farage the other day on GB News. And of course, Nigel Farage is, that's where Nigel Farage is now. He's in a television studio rather than stalking the political landscape. And the Tory party at the moment, after 15 years, have no real alternative breathing down the neck of Tory MPs in marginal seats from the right of the political spectrum. And that gives him an enormous advantage to Keir Starmer, who has to deal with the Greens, the SNP, the Liberal Democrats, etc. So fundamentally, I think the Tories are still in a strong electoral position. And I'm afraid until that probably changes, I don't think we'll see Boris Johnson on kept on his toes as much as we should. Thank you. Those fascinating points you tucked in there. Um, in, in, you know, as you said, la- lack of um, challenge from the right, despite the rows over immigration and small boats yeah. and all that kind of thing, something I'm sure we'll come back to in future podcasts. But with that, we've got to wrap up this edition of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Gemma Tetlow, Alice Lilly, Graham Atkins, and especially Tim Montgomery. If you like this podcast, then do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. You can listen back to my interviews with Louise Casey and Neil Ferguson who had this to say about what comes next on the COVID front. Let's start with where we are right now. The sun's shining, lots of people back to school, um, lots of kids back to school, lots of people back in their offices today. Afghanistan has blown coronavirus off the, the headlines for the past few weeks. So is now rows in Parliament over social care and all that. Are we back to normal? Not quite. I think we're on the road there. I think in term, I think we may see a difficult few weeks. Um, exactly how long that will go on for is, is unclear, but maybe Scotland gives us some indication. They reopened schools two weeks earlier than us and have seen case numbers slightly more than double there uh, since they did. It's a hint of a plateau now, which may be good news. But um, So I think most people, most epidemiologists, scientists, advising governments at the moment are expecting to see case numbers tick up. A really difficult thing to predict is say when when will a peak be reached and that is because there's a lot of uncertainty around the details of quite the level of immunity in the population given Delta and given vaccine efficacy slightly compromised by Delta. Given also just people's behaviour, how much will contact rates go up you know, associated with the new term because you know, last this last month, we were still at only 60% of normal contact rates in the population, actually less than the previous year's August with Eat Out to Help Out. So that certainly probably kept transmission down. So there's a lot of uncertainty going forward. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please do give us a review. The government might not be keen on scrutiny, but we love it. And you can find more of our work at our website, Institute for Government. Dot org.uk, including Alice's Parliamentary Monitor report. And if you do visit our website, you'll see we're looking to recruit a new economist to work with Gemma. So please do apply if that's your line of work or passion, or get in touch with any questions about working at the IFG. 
A week really is a long time in politics. The weekend can't come soon enough for this first week back in Westminster. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>